What do you want to say to Mama's True Crime Army? I love you. Oh, that's so sweet. Mama, I love you too. Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and I get more and more excited to be here with my lovely listeners every week. So many case recommendations coming in. One thing is for sure, I will never run out of content. A few things before I begin. I want to give a shout out to this week's producer, Producer Katie. Thank you so much for helping out with this week's episode. You absolutely made my month with your contribution to the Military Murder Booster Club. Helping to produce this show is just phenomenal. Thank you so much, girl. And I would also like to announce that I'm opening a merch store in a few weeks. Woohoo! I have been getting a ton of questions about merch and it will be coming very, very soon. If you want to be one of the first to know when the merch store opens, please go to militarymurderpodcast.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage and sign up for the newsletter. My newsletter will be the first to announce the grand opening. And the merch store is going to have more than just military murder merch. It will also have some regular true crime items. And you don't want to miss out. There will be something for everyone. T-shirts, sweatshirts, tote bags, mugs, stickers, and magnets. So much that you can buy. All right, let's get to today's case. Today's case is insane. Before Shawshank Redemption, there was this case. Just kidding, but not really. For this case, I had to legit do some digging. I had to sign up for a newspapers.com subscription because the information on the internet was sparse and I put in a FOIA request back in July with the Air Force and I'm still waiting. But this story must be told. Imagine a world where you know that you're going to die at the hands of a person who swore to love you till death, literally. Imagine a world where the person publicly threatens to kill you, actually sets you on fire and then chokes you while your neighbors watch in horror. Imagine a world where you are in fear every moment But today, you are brave. Today is your day in court to speak out against this abuser. Now, imagine a world where you're not even safe in the confines of a base legal office. That's the world that Marie Willis lived in. Today, I will tell you a terrifying story of a man too savvy for the Air Force and too savvy for the Navy maximum security prisons. Join me today as I discuss the case against Air Force Senior Airman Jeremy J.J. Willis. Now, let's dig in. The sources for this episode include the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces Opinion, the Dayton Daily News, the Greenville News, the South Bend Tribune, the Telegraph Forum, the Index Journal, the Times and Democrat, the Tyler Courier Times, the Victoria Advocate, and a Times Magazine article. And for this story, I also spoke with a federal human resources training expert, Michael Quorum, the author of a federal employee handbook titled Preventing Workplace Disturbances. And his insight on workplace behavior and violence was something I think every person should know. Okay, let's get right into it. Today's case is about 23-year-old senior airman Jeremy James J.J. Willis. Jeremy was originally from Ironton, Ohio. And before entering the Air Force, he was an Army marksman. And for whatever reason, the Army was drawing down in the 80s. So Jeremy transferred to the Air Force. 
So that brings us to about 1992 at Myrtle Beach Air Force Base, South Carolina, a base that is no longer around but was in the 90s. Jeremy met a young 20-year-old divorced mother named Marie. She had a six-year-old son from her first marriage, and she was a GS-4 working at the hospital on base. It's unclear how they met, but I presume that because she worked at the base hospital and he worked on base, maybe they met there. Marie was originally from Rhode Island, and within four months of dating, the couple got married. But the marriage was doomed from the beginning because Jeremy was controlling. It appears that Marie was quickly getting fed up with Jeremy, and she must have threatened to leave him. And in Jeremy's world, this was a big no-no. Nobody leaves Jeremy. As I was doing research for this episode, I happened across a federal employee handbook called Preventing Workplace Disruption by Michael Quorum, as I mentioned earlier. Well, in that book, I saw two pages describing some of Jeremy's actions, and I was hooked. How does Mr. Quorum know so much about this case? So I personally called him up, and to my surprise, he was willing to chat. He was such a pleasant person to talk to, and he told me that he's a federal human resources guy, and he goes around the entire country teaching on HR issues. And for this particular training for which I found the handbook, he was teaching about workplace violence. He had the pleasure of teaching a class many, many, many years ago. And one of his students who was in this class was an Air Force investigator that had worked on the Willis case. And we'll get to that. And the agent shared some of the details of the case with Mr. Quorum. By that point, the case that I'm discussing today had been over for a long time. Anyway, Mr. Quorum used the information that he gained from the OSI agent about the Willis case in his workplace violence book as an example of the signs that supervisors should be on the lookout for potential violent actors. And just to be clear, everything Mr. Quorum knew about the case and discussed with me was already published in his federal employee handbook, which is available to the public. But it was just such a pleasure to speak to someone who knew someone connected to this case. So I just wanted to say that for clarification. Okay, back to my story. Marie worked at the hospital on base and she must have told Jeremy that she was going to leave. Husbands, if you ever screw up, you know that you usually change your demeanor. You bring chocolates, flowers, Target gift cards. Well, Jeremy took a different approach. He barged into the hospital where Marie worked, yelled at her in front of dozens of her coworkers and dozens of patients, told her that if she didn't take him back, he was going to bring her son to the hospital and kill them both. What the what? Well, surprise, surprise, this crazy tactic didn't work to make Marie want to stay with him. But Jeremy was determined if he couldn't have Marie, no one would. On August 13, 1992, he violently forced her into their mobile home closet, turned on a propane tank and lit a match. The ensuing flames resulted in Marie receiving second-degree burns to her legs. It is unclear if the fire or flames were ever large enough for anyone outside the home to notice that there was a fire, but Jeremy begged and convinced young Marie to report the burn injuries as an accident. Marie went along with the ploy, and a friend of hers later testified that Marie told the police that the burns were an accident. But Marie did this to protect her son because she somehow believed that if Jeremy hurt her, he'd also hurt her son. The burns were so serious that it required Marie to stay in the hospital for two weeks. Marie knew that this was the last straw. This was the last straw. And upon leaving the hospital, she affirmed to Jeremy her initial stance that she was leaving him. And for whatever reason, Jeremy was like somehow shocked because his wife was not going to stay with him and was still pursuing a divorce. And maybe he thought that trying to kill her would make her want to stay around. 
but he was wrong. When he again heard the divorce news, he flew into a fit of rage and he attempted to choke Marie as their neighbors watched in horror, all while Marie's six-year-old son tried to stop the assault. This time around, there was an audience of people, so there was no way to say anything was an accident. The incident was reported to the military and the Office of Special Investigations, OSI, got involved. When Marie finally decided to speak out against her husband, she met with an investigator and told him, quote, it's not a matter of if he's going to kill me, it's only a matter of when, end quote. The OSI agent believed her. Immediately after the assault and after meeting with OSI, Marie got the hell out of Dodge and she moved back to Rhode Island where her mother and four out of her five siblings lived and she would be safe there. After meeting with Marie, the OSI agent also interviewed Jeremy. Like, dude, what is wrong with you? But of course, in a much more professional manner. Like, come on. As Mr. Coram recounted the OSI agent's tales over the phone to me, Jeremy showed no remorse and brazenly told the investigators, quote, if I can't have her, nobody will, end quote. So the OSI agent was like, wow, this man is no joke. He's willing to tell me, an investigator, this, so he's pretty serious. The OSI agent wrote up the report and recommended pretrial confinement for Jeremy. Now, let me take a few moments to discuss military pretrial confinement as it exists today. Just from looking at this case, I can tell it probably wasn't much different back in 1993. In the military, people commit crimes. Clearly, we have military murder podcasts for a reason, right? Sometimes they commit heinous crimes like murder, rape, burglary, aggravated assault. But the crazy thing is they're not automatically thrown in military jail pending trial. No. If the crime is egregious enough, the commander can hold the person for like a week. But within that week, a lot of stuff is happening behind the scenes, right? There has to be a hearing and the government has to prove that the military member is either a danger to himself or herself, a danger to someone else, or is a flight risk. And then the magistrate, who is the decision-making authority, usually a commander, goes through an analysis. And part of that analysis is commanders considering less restrictive forms of confinement. Let me give you an example. If you have, if you're a commander and you have a guy that keeps stealing televisions at the downtown Walmart, do you have to put that person in pre-trial confinement? Or can you maybe restrict him to base and not allow him in the exchange? Yeah, maybe. So the commander in that particular case may try that less restrictive form of restraint before choosing pre-trial confinement. Okay, but the commander just has to consider a lesser form of restriction. That commander doesn't necessarily need to try every single form of lesser restriction. No, not at all. That'd be silly. If someone kills someone, uh, you you know, you're not going to say, oh, well, you know, maybe we'll restrict him to base because the person's already dead. That doesn't make sense. So the commander in this case, the commander magistrate who was going to make the decision whether Jeremy should be in pre-trial confinement or not, he had information about the burns caused on Marie, Marie's two-week hospital stay, information about the public strangulation attempt, and information that Marie was no longer in the local area because now she was long gone in Rhode Island. Well, the commander also had a strong recommendation from OSI that Jeremy was a menace to society and should be confined pending trial. And remember, at this point, Jeremy was pending investigation for aggravated assault. Well, the commander balanced all of these factors, and he must have thought that Jeremy was no longer a threat because he chose to restrict Jeremy to base instead of placing him in confinement. But in all honesty, no one's really watching you while you're on restriction, at least not back then. So Jeremy, even though he was restricted to the confines of the military base, 
He was leaving base left and right as he pleased, and he had something huge up his sleeve, something his commander would live to regret. Meanwhile, Marie got wind that Jeremy was still a free man. So in October of 1992, Marie in Rhode Island, she went to the local police in her hometown of Bristol and she asked for protection. Like literally she wanted a security detail. She told them basically, listen, my husband's crazy. He told me he was going to kill me if I left him and I left him and he knows where my family lives. According to the police officer who took the report, she was very upset. She was very scared. And she was nervous as she spoke to them. Even though Jeremy was hundreds of miles away in South Carolina and she's in Rhode Island, she was fearful. She thought he was coming to find her in Rhode Island. Well, after three-ish months of gathering all of the evidence, the government finally levied charges against Jeremy. In December, they formally charged Jeremy with attempted murder and assault. Happy New Year! It's the beginning of the new year, January 4th, 1993, the date of the scheduled Article 32 hearing, which is equivalent to a civilian preliminary hearing. Marie was the main witness, of course, and she had to testify at the hearing. So she left Rhode Island to return to South Carolina, but she didn't bring her son. She was accompanied by Jeremy's aunt and uncle, Wilma and Terry Plyban. They were all prepared to testify against Jeremy. Wilma had some pretty damning evidence too. his aunt, You see, over the holiday weekend, Jeremy called her. He called his aunt and told her that he wanted to kill Marie. He told her he wanted to, quote, choke her to death, watch her eyes pop out, and then watch the expression on her face as she saw it was him, end quote. Jeremy had a right to be at this hearing, so he knew that his wife was going to be on base soon. So he plotted and he plotted and then he waited. Marie, Wilma, and Terry walked into the legal office around 8 o'clock that morning. Marie was taken to a conference room where she had a discussion, like a brief discussion with the staff judge advocate, SJA for short. For those of you who don't know, the SJA is usually the senior attorney at a legal office. So you could say kind of like a partner at a regular legal firm. Wilma and Terry went into the chief prosecutor's office. His name was Captain Hatch. When the SJA was done talking to Marie in the conference room, he left and he started hearing rumblings that Jeremy was in the building. The SJA found Jeremy and told him that he had to leave. But Jeremy pleaded that he just wanted to see his wife. The SJA was like, no, 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 you gotta go. And he started, the two of them started walking towards the front door. When all of a sudden, Jeremy bolted back down the hall to the small conference room where Marie was waiting. Marie shouted, Jeremy, no! Oh, no! Then another gunshot. Jeremy then stood over his wife's body while the pretty yellow dress that she had been wearing turned red. The SJA stood at the door in shock and Jeremy gave the SJA the, quote, most horrible, hateful glare, end quote, then ran out the door. Marie had been shot in the head and chest, dying in the legal office. Meanwhile, the people in the legal office were frozen in fear after hearing active gunshots. They're doing active shooter drills. But this wasn't a drill and they didn't do active shooter drills like we do now back in the 90s. So they were just trying to steer clear of the psychopath with a gun. But Jeremy wasn't done terrorizing everyone. After he shot his wife, he went back to the office where his aunt and uncle were and his intent was to kill his aunt. By this time, he got to the office, the door was almost closed and both Wilma and Terry were behind the door pushing it shut with all their might. But Jeremy had unhuman strength and he was stronger than the two of them and he kept the door open just enough, about six inches. 
that he was able to wedge his hand and his gun into the door. Jeremy saw Captain Hatch sitting at his desk. I'm assuming that Captain Hatch is frozen in fear since he's sitting right there. And Jeremy shot at Captain Hatch, but missed. Jeremy then turned the gun towards the back of the door, still only through this small six-inch gap, and he created this killing zone, trying to kill his aunt and uncle because he knew that they were the ones behind the door. Thankfully, his shots didn't injure either of them. Once he heard the sirens from afar, he knew it was time. Jeremy fled. What we will later learn is that Jeremy had been plotting and waiting for this day for a long time. Sadly, Marie died three hours later at a nearby hospital. Once Jeremy fled, he drove his government vehicle that he had been driving to pick up a rental car that he had strategically parked a few blocks from the legal office, and he took off. A day later, the police discovered a gray Toyota Corolla outside the Morrell's Inlet. It turns out that car was rented by Jeremy a few days before the murder. That same day, the day after the murder, Jeremy was seen getting off a bus in Ashland, Kentucky, across the Ohio River from Ironton, which is his hometown. A nationwide manhunt was underway, but they couldn't find him. After the leads went cold on Friday, January 15, 1993, America's Most Wanted ran a feature on Jeremy. I haven't been able to find it, so if anyone's out there can find this America's Most Wanted feature, please let me know. I'll post it on my website if it's somewhere, but I haven't been able to find it. A few days after the news was broadcast, Jeremy was caught in Brownstone, Texas. After he called the police to get this, he called the police to report that his car had been stolen after he went on a drinking binge in Mexico. Yeah, that's what he did. He called the police. Even though police were looking for him, he called the police to report his car stolen. So the car that he was reporting stolen was his second rental car that had actually been discovered by police and impounded. After Jeremy made the 911 call, the police then tracked Jeremy's whereabouts to a taxi cab company and then to a motel. Police then followed him to a topless night bar where he had a pistol, but when they caught him, he didn't resist arrest. His recovery was a concerted effort by the FBI, the Texas Rangers, and the local police. He was caught on January 19, 1993, 15 days after he brutally killed Marie at the legal office. After being caught, Jeremy was on his way to a court hearing when he told KGBT and KRGV reporters that he shot his wife and would have gotten away with it had authorities not gotten lucky. Really? Yeah, the cops were lucky that you turned yourself in. This guy doesn't make any sense. He said, quote, three more days and I would have been gone, end quote. The reporters asked him why he did it and he said, quote, I loved her. It's sort of ironic, isn't it? End quote. The Tyler Courier Times reported that after Jeremy was arrested, the question of who would take Jeremy was looming. Would the civilians in South Carolina take him or would the military take him? Well, Technical Sergeant Biggerstaff, an Air Force spokesperson, said, quote, legal books are flying trying to figure that one out, end quote. Well, it didn't take long, and when Jeremy was returned to South Carolina, the military took him. And the Myrtle Beach police chief said he didn't even realize that the military had already levied charges against Jeremy. And what I found, me, Margot, I found funny, was what a councilman named Dewey Kirkley had to say about the entire who should take Jeremy ordeal. Well, Councilman Kirkley said the city police were trying to take the case out of a misguided desire for glory. Ouch. But don't worry, he also gave the Air Force a zinger by saying, quote, I think the military should pick up the tab. He belongs to them, end quote. 
I think that's so funny that they're trying to figure out who takes the case and they're just keep zinging each other back and forth in the news in the newspaper. I mean, the councilman isn't completely wrong, you know, something I don't often think about with my true crime obsession is the cost of these trials and the cost of housing an inmate. Well, the Air Force definitely picked up the tab for this case. Jeremy was charged with premeditated murder, four counts of attempted murder, two counts of assault, and nine other charges, including desertion. Jeremy was in a brig located on Charleston Naval Weapons Station South Annex, a high-security area which handles ammunitions for Navy ships. According to the Index Journal, on Sunday night, June 6, 1993, Jeremy talked the guards into letting him watch TV after 10 p.m. And this is a big no-no because prison rules require that all inmates be in their cells by 10 p.m. Well, the Charleston Post, The Courier, and The Sun News report that an unidentified source said that a guard then went on a cigarette break, leaving Jeremy alone and several doors unlocked for 30 minutes. In that time frame, Jeremy escaped from a maximum security prison while awaiting trial. What? He was wearing a camouflage outfit issued to all prisoners, tennis shoes, and he had a personal radio. He had last been seen at 10 p.m., Authorities issued another nationwide manhunt alert on Monday, June 7th for the six foot one, 175 pound man with brown hair and brown eyes. And on Monday, they searched high and low around the annex, even using tracking dogs, and there were no hits. This search was a daunting task involving a large mass of land that had swampy and wooded areas. According to the Greenville News, Jeremy was the first person to escape from the brig since it was opened in 1989. And of course, an investigation was launched to figure out how a prisoner could escape from a maximum security prison. The initial thoughts were, were the guards in on it? Well, four days after the escape, and still no Jeremy, the brig spokesperson came online and said it didn't appear that the guards or any other prisoners were in on Jeremy's escape plans. Quote, we don't have any information that would lead us to believe that there was any collusion. It appears to have just been errors on the part of a properly trained security guard, end quote. Immediately after Jeremy's escape, witnesses against him in Ohio and Rhode Island were guarded by authorities in the event, of course, that Jeremy was going after them. Jeremy's picture was plastered everywhere in Jeremy's hometown in case he went home and in Marie's hometown in, in case he went there and in Myrtle Beach, which was his last duty station. As reported by the Santa Fe New Mexican, Marie's dad said the Navy acted with, quote, gross incompetence, end quote, and added, quote, he must have gotten some help. He must have conned people into thinking that he was this goody goody, end quote. And of course, everyone was on edge. Are we next? Marie's mom, Marie Mello, said, quote, I'm very, very nervous and very, very upset. It's like a bomb on me. I can't handle this, end quote. Poor Marie Mello. She feared for her life, her husband's life, and her grandson's life after her daughter's life was taken at the base legal office. Now, can you guess how long Jeremy was on the run? Five weeks. Yup. Jeremy was recaptured on July 14th in Fort Worth, Texas. Get this. This is how Jeremy was caught. He just keeps turning himself in, which is good for society, but... Jeremy went to the DMV to get a new ID card, and it was after he presented some phony ID that the DMV workers thought, mm, something's up here, so they called authorities. And that's how he got caught the second time. Well, once he, Jeremy is back in custody, he staged a four-day hunger strike. 
Can you believe this guy was on the run for five weeks? That's insane. But of course, the Navy must have had their tails between their legs because the military fought for jurisdiction to take the case. Yet they were so incompetent that a guy escaped from a maximum security prison. The Dayton Daily News reported that after Jeremy was caught, the Navy vowed that Jeremy would not escape again. Famous last words, my friends. Famous last words. After he escaped and was returned to confinement, he was only allowed out of his cell one hour a day under heavy surveillance. They didn't let him watch TV nor allow him to wear a camouflage uniform like the one that he had used when he escaped the first time. So, I did some digging and I found out what happened to the guard who took that little smoke break that allowed Jeremy to be on the run for five weeks. According to the Times and Democrat, the guard was 25-year-old Navy Petty Officer 2nd Class William Kern. Well, he was court-martialed for his actions, but at a misdemeanor level, not a felony level trial. Kern pled guilty to 11 counts of dereliction of duty and one count of neglect. Kern testified at his own trial, and he admitted that there were seven prisoners watching TV. Kern asked another guard to watch his section while he took a restroom break, but he alleged that the other guard never came, and he left anyway. He actually admits that it was common practice for him to leave doors unlocked, and he believed that Jeremy was casing the place, you know, watching his every move for a couple months, and that's when he was able to escape. Well, the investigation revealed that Jeremy walked through two unlocked doors in the maximum security prison, broke through a chain link fence, pushed through a break in the wire, and then scaled an outside wall. After Kern's court-martial, he was reduced in rank and discharged from the Navy with a bad conduct discharge. So that's what happened to the guard who wasn't guarding the prisoners. At the beginning of August 1993, Jeremy was arraigned. As reported by The Telegraph, on his way to the arraignment, he told reporters, quote, I'm guilty as sin. I did it because I loved her. It's the only reason, end quote. But the military judge was tiffed, not just at Jeremy for running his mouth, but also at the reporters for asking him questions and egging him on. So at the arraignment, the judge ordered Jeremy and his lawyers to stop talking to the press. And he told the press to stop asking Jeremy questions. And the judge was as serious as a heart attack, too. He threatened to close all future hearings to the public if his gag order was violated. And of course, any and all statements that Jeremy made to reporters before then, and even after then, were fair game as evidence at trial. Every last word. That fall, Jeremy pled guilty to 13 of 20 charges against him, including murder with intent to kill, escape, three counts of attempted murder, and two counts of desertion. But he still had to stand trial as the military was seeking the death penalty and they had to prove up his case to premeditated murder. Well, the trial was set for December, a little less than a year after Marie's murder. The following facts emerged at trial. Jeremy's plot to kill Marie during her visit to the legal office started about a week before the visit. He started by withdrawing $1,500 from a credit union, buying a 9mm pistol from a pawn shop, and taking his new toy, meaning the gun, for a spin at a firing range to get practice and to make sure it worked. He then oddly and for whatever reason rented three hotel rooms, one in Morell's Inlet, one in Conway, and one on Myrtle Beach the weekend before the murder. He also rented two cars. One was a white Plymouth Acclaim and the other a gray Toyota Corolla. 
On the day of the murder, Jeremy arrived at his landscaping and maintenance job on base at 8 o'clock in the morning, like nothing, like not a care in the world. He got there, checked in, and then he told his co-worker that he had to get some supplies and he would be right back. At some point, Jeremy told another airman, quote, it's showtime, end quote. Jeremy drove this little tiny military government truck to the base legal office where he knew that his wife would be arriving any minute, and he waited. Once his wife, aunt, and uncle were in the building, he waited a little bit longer, and then he walked into the base legal office around 8, 10 in the morning. He walked in, and he saw that his aunt and uncle were talking to the military lawyer, Captain Hatch, in his office. And Jeremy actually says, hey, but he didn't stop to chit-chat. He just kind of says, hey, and keeps walking. So I imagine that they are probably very fearful. Then Jeremy committed the heinous murder and then fled in his government vehicle. Greenville News reported that on the flip side, Jeremy's lawyers tried to argue that the murder wasn't premeditated. Specifically, the defense presented evidence that Jeremy was treated for alcohol abuse just before the murder and that he was physically and mentally abused as a child. His upbringing and his alcohol dependency affected his personality. That's what they're arguing. So much so that the murder was an emotional response instead of premeditation. His defense attorney said, quote, He didn't have the cool mind needed for premeditation. Unwittingly, the Air Force and Marianne Willis were pushing every button that he had to upset him. He was losing everything, his wife and his career, end quote. Dr. Lewis Randolph Wade, the defense psychologist, examined Jeremy in August of 1993, and he stated that Jeremy was a man with a lot of self-loathing. Dr. Wade testified at trial and painted a picture of a tortured soul whose troubled past left him without feelings when he killed his wife. After Marie filed spousal abuse charges against him in the latter part of 1992, Jeremy adopted this, like, quote, mission mentality, end quote, about killing her especially after he was charged with attempted murder and assault. According to Dr. Wade, mission mentality was the result of a chaotic and dysfunctional childhood. His stepmother verbally abused him and treated him like the black sheep, and this gave him the sense of not being loved or cared. The prosecution then argued, don't get it twisted. This is premeditated. He, quote, went into the legal office, hunted her down, and murdered her in cold blood, end quote. The jury didn't buy the defense's argument and convicted Jeremy of premeditated murder, three counts of attempted murder, two counts of desertion, two counts of disobeying a superior commissioned officer, escape from confinement at Charleston Naval Brig on June 6, 1993, resisting arrest, wrongful appropriation, assault, aggravated assault, carrying a concealed weapon, and breaking restriction. However, they acquitted him of attempted murder in the first two incidents against Marie, the burning and the choking. The jury instead settled on aggravated assault on those two incidents. During sentencing, Willis told the jury, and the reports are unclear if his statement was sworn or unsworn. He said in the last five months, he found God. Quote, I know the attitudes some people have towards a convict. I don't want anyone to think that I'm trying to use God or religion as a shield for my responsibilities. What I did was wrong. I wish I could undo what I've done. Words aren't enough. Nothing will ever be able to replace Marianne. End quote. According to the Lancaster Eagle Gazette, the six-member jury took only 30 minutes in deciding a sentence. They couldn't agree on the death penalty. He was sentenced to a dishonorable discharge from the military, life imprisonment, reduction to the lowest grade, and total forfeitures of pay and allowances. 
he would be eligible for parole after serving only 10 years in confinement. Of the sentence, Marie's father, Eugene Mello, said, quote, We don't feel justice was served. If there was one consolation, it's knowing there's a higher law. He has to answer to God, end quote. As told by Mr. Corum in his Workplace Violence Handbook, Marie's family later sued the Air Force and Jeremy's commander in his personal capacity. But I was not able to confirm that information from any additional resources, but I did want to let you know that if you go back and read the two pages that Mr. Corum has on this case, that is mentioned in there. Sometime in 1995, Jeremy again attempted to escape prison. And on April 24, 1995, he was charged and found guilty by the disciplinary board while in prison. This wasn't an official trial, but rather an internal board held in the prison. After many years of appeals, Jeremy was formally dishonorably discharged from the Air Force on February 17, 1998, six-plus years from the date he murdered his wife on the Air Force base. But the story doesn't end there. Jeremy has continued to terrorize those within the prison walls wherever he goes. While in prison, he has had a slew of infractions, including three incidents of assault consummated by battery, four incidents of communicating a threat, three incidents of conduct that threatens, arson, destruction of government property, four incidents of disobedience, and disrespect. There may be more, but these are the ones that he had when his case was reviewed by a court in 2001. A court for what, you may ask? Well, on April 30th, 1998, three years after his previous attempt to escape, while in a medium confinement facility at the United States Disciplinary Barracks, the USDB, Jeremy hid in a trash dumpster, which was then loaded onto a disposal truck and transported outside of the USDB. He was recaptured the same day and was shot twice during apprehension due to resisting arrest. During a reclassification hearing to consider whether or not he should be moved from a medium security prison to a maximum security prison, Jeremy told the board, quote, it's an inmate's duty to try and escape, especially long-termers, end quote. And further informing the board that he is, quote, an escape risk and always will be, end quote. For this escape attempt, Jeremy pled guilty to attempted wrongful appropriation of a car, conspiracy to escape from prison, escape from confinement and fleeing apprehension. He was sentenced to confinement for nine years. Jeremy would later argue that his sentence was harsher than his co-conspirators who were only sentenced to 50 months, which is about four plus years. Despite Jeremy's complaints, he attempted to enter into a plea deal with a four-year cap, but his, uh, his plea deal was rejected. For unknown reasons, on June 30th, 1998, the District Court of Leavenworth County, Kansas, granted Airman Basic Willis's request to legally change his name from Jeremy Willis to Robert Smith. But it appears that he did change his name back to his original name, which is Jeremy Willis. 49-year-old Jeremy is currently in federal confinement at the USP Big Sandy. As Mr. Corum wrote in his workplace violence book, Willis had a terrible upbringing. He hated women and often abused drugs. According to Mr. Corum, there were one, two, five, 12 reasons why Jeremy shouldn't have gotten into the Air Force, but he did. From the start, signs of violence surfaced, particularly constant fights and confrontations at boot camp. And after he married Marie, the police were always at the house. But Jeremy's leadership gave chance after chance after chance until someone lost their life, and that someone was Marie. The Times Magazine did a piece on domestic violence in the military, and they featured Marie's story. 
It is called, quote, the living room war, end quote. The story ends with quotes from Marie's parents, and I want to read them to you today. Eugene says, quote, abused people should not rely on the military for protection, end quote. And Marie's mom says, quote, the Air Force was an accomplice in my daughter's death, end quote. According to the Times and Democrat, a Bristol, Rhode Island detective said, this is a tragedy that never should have happened. If we knew how dangerous Willis was, the Air Force should have known. Marie's story is terrifying in so many ways. At first, she didn't speak up. And then when she finally did, the system failed to protect her. It's been 27-ish years since the murder, and we hope that commanders are protecting our troops and taking all claims seriously. Let's keep each other out of trouble. If you or someone you know is the victim of domestic violence, there are places that you can go to get help. You can contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Or you can start a chat with them online at www.thehotline.org. So when I first started this podcast, I debated which case would be my episode one. It was really a toss up between this one and Shap, the headless lover case. But I think that this case is equally disturbing. When crimes are committed blatantly in front of others that are just so ballsy, it's really disturbing. But what do you guys think? What do you guys think about this case? I mean, clearly it was the 90s. The military has improved significantly since then. Let me know what you guys think on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast or my Facebook page at Military True Crime. Reminder, if you want to know more about Military Murder Podcast or any behind the scenes items, I haven't sent out any newsletters yet, but I encourage everyone to go to my website and sign up for the newsletter. The people who sign up for my newsletter are going to have at least 24 hours advance notice of when my merch store is opening. All right. This show was created by me, produced by producer Katie, and all of the music was created by TyOps. To find a list of all the sources that I pieced together to bring you this story, I encourage everyone to visit my website, militarymurderpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Shh, let's work another podcast.